We're going to do the thing. Um, Mike gets grumpy at me when I do this and we don't record it, James. So if you have a chance to uh, hit record and it's good to go, that's good. We're going to do something a little different than we did this morning. So. <laughs> uh, so, uh, as a church, we've been making our way through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and we have been, in particular, sitting in Nehemiah chapter 10 for three weeks. This is week number three. Um, what's been happening for the Hebrews at the end of the exile under Nehemiah, they have, um, under Ezra, they've built the temple. Under Nehemiah, they've built the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Um, and then this just, like, period of revival has broken out. Am I not wearing it? It fell off my head. All right. Thank you. That's not your fault. That's my fault. We're, we've been reading Nehemiah chapter 10 for three weeks. For those of you listening to a recording that starts with horrible noises. Uh, and um, we, uh, we've been sitting in this period of revival, which has broken out after they've read the word of God. So the people have encountered God's voice in the word. God's voice has brought about in them the process of both conviction and redemption, or as uh, Mike calls it, sorrow and joy, same words. Essentially, it's slightly different. Um, and then that has led them to a new kind of obedience um, and bad formatting, probably because I'm not using actual PowerPoint. Um, so the first week we sat in, the first of their responses that they've, they've come to. They've, they've been through this period of time where they've started celebrating the festival, the festival of booths in particular, uh, and then we come out the other end, and they, they draft up this letter saying, these are all the ways we're going to live in light of God's grace to us. Um, in the first one, they talked about their attitudes towards marriage and bringing those in line with God's will revealed in the law. Uh, in the second week, they talked about the Sabbath and their w- desire to bring that, that part of their lives in, in line with God's will for them. And in the third part of, of Nehemiah 10, which is the largest chunk of the letter by, by volume, they talk about wanting to bring their lives in line with what the law says about the principles of tithing to keep the ministry of the temple going in particular. Um, tithing and offerings and offering their first fruits to God. Uh, now, what we did with that this morning is we did the thing we've done the last two works. We did one of those like Bible marathon kind of sermons where we walked right from the Old Testament right through to the New Testament, making sure that we saw why the principle of tithing was there, what it says about our heart towards God, um, and then coming out the other end towards what the Christian practice should look like. Let me now at this point encourage you that if you would like to hear that sermon, you can find it on our website or our YouTube channel or our podcast, and you can... Um, you can have a look at a sermon where all of those verses are relevant. Um, tonight, we're going to do none of those. So, uh, <laughs> oh, thank you. Actually, Keith Smith, 92-odd Keith Smith, told me it was the best sermon I'd ever preached. Yeah, that's very exciting, isn't it? I've been pastoring here for 10 years, so it's got a lot of competition. And I don't agree with him, but that was, it was encouraging nonetheless. Um, tonight, I want to do something slightly different. Um, rather than talking about the mechanics and the practice of how Christian generosity and tithing should look, um, I want instead to focus on a related thing, which is the heart that goes into Christian generosity specifically. Um, namely, a warning and, a, and an encouragement to keep away from idolizing wealth and rather to have God as, our, um, as the object of our worship. We're going to do that by looking at two passages tonight from Gospels. Um, so, Dave, good luck. Uh, Mark chapter 4, we're going to be looking at most of Mark chapter 4. Uh, there's a parable at the start and an explanation of the parable at the end and the bit in the middle we don't need. Uh, and then the other thing that we're going to be looking at is Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. 
So, why don't we start with Mark chapter 4, which is the parable of the sower. Jesus gives us this parable, um, and then towards the end, uh, a little bit further down in the passage, um, the disciples ask him, what does the parable mean? And Jesus explains it. So we're not left to interpret it for ourselves. He tells us explicitly what it means. We'll read from the beginning. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. The whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. uh, And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Um, That's my backyard at the moment. Um, near the trampoline, where there's no longer any grass. Other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell onto good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We'll jump ahead to verse 13. Um, He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. There's our theme. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So that's the hard soil. There's a response to God's word where God's word goes out and lands on a heart and just has no effect. No effect. Some people are just immune to hearing the same things that you and I have heard and found life-changing. They hear them and no effect. I don't care. Uh, And Jesus tells us actually at a a supernatural level, um, Satan has come and snatched that word away to prevent it from bearing fruit. Um, And then the next kind is the ones sown on the rocky ground. Jesus tells us those are the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And yet they have no root in themselves but they endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is the rocky soil. What did Jesus say about it? He said it's shallow. And under the shallow layer of soil, there's, there's a bunch of rocks. Um, and so when you scatter the seed on the shallow soil, you get a, you get a response. It looks pretty encouraging. It takes off. The, the soil's pretty good for a centimeter. Uh, but the, 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 the root is shallow. There's no, there's no depth to it. And so that's like people who hear the word and respond. And we see that sometimes in the life of church. And it's wonderful. We think Jesus has got this person. It's really exciting. But then difficulty comes. It gets costly to follow Jesus. And that's like the sun shining on a, on a plant with no roots. It withers. They don't survive the trial of the heat. And then he says others are like the ones sown among the thorns. Here's our focus for this evening. He said, they are those who hear the word... But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And sadly, we see this one all too often. 
This is the person who (laughs) has a heart where riches, or more broadly, the things of this world, are competing with God's word for priority, with God himself revealed in the word. These people, they, in one sense, respond. They they bear a kind of, of fruit when they encounter the word of God, but at some point they give up. And it's not because of persecution, it's not because of difficulty, it's because of idolatry. Do you see what Jesus is saying? There is something that they love more than God. And he uses just the most interesting of phrases. He says, they go for the deceitfulness of riches. Do you see that one? The deceitfulness of riches. What is deceitful about riches? Like, do you think when you look at your bank account, I'm being lied to? If you do, you need a new bank. <laughs> what Numbers don't lie, do they? That's, that's a saying. Numbers don't lie. Mike says it to me all the time. It's all he talks about. It's not true. He's not that guy. The deceitfulness of riches. Surely what this means is that <laughs> your wealth, your stuff, the security that this world has to offer you preaches a sermon to you. It, it, it communicates something to you about what the meaning of life is. And the standard faithless view of stuff is that my stuff gives my life meaning. My stuff gives my life security. My stuff is the purpose of my life. We can, we can fall into that. And this, I mean, especially when we're young, I think. We can fall in the trap of believing my stuff gives me an identity. It gives me status. It gives me significance. It's proof that I've made it and that I've become somebody. And sadly, there are many, many, many people in church who have yet to deal with the idol of stuff. Now, we focused here specifically on riches, um, but we're not to understand that this principle applies narrowly to money, do you understand? It's not just riches. It's the deceitfulness of riches, but it's also, what did he call it? Um, the cares of the world. The cares of the world. This is anything from I've got bills to pay to I've got people to please. And it turns out that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches can prove spiritually fatal. It can kill your soul. It can take you away from God. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Chapter 6, sorry. We'll go from verse 19. Where Jesus again speaking says to us, do not lay up, which is just the ESV deciding to try and uh, imitate the KJV. They could have used any other word. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We'll we'll pause there. We'll, We'll keep reading on in just a little bit. Here we have the heart of idolatry, taking money as its core again and explaining to us what is happening in the heart which has become filled with the deceitfulness of riches and the concerns of this world, the worries of this world. There is a person who takes stuff and says, this stuff is my purpose. This stuff is my security. This stuff is the meaning of my life. And the person who approaches money that way has money not as their servant, but as their master. You cannot serve two masters, says Jesus. You will love one and you will hate the other. And so ultimately this wrestle is a wrestle of worship. Do you see it? Who do you love? What do you treasure. And this is exactly what he's talking about with all that stuff about the eye, which in the first reading seems a little bit unrelated. It's totally related. You look at the thing that you desire, don't you? You look at the thing that you desire, you pursue it. And if your eye is healthy, if it's, if it's focused on the right things, if, if, if you are taking in life through using your eyes to read God's word and to meet with your Lord and to pursue goodness and justice and mercy and all those things. Your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, if your eye is focused on the wrong thing, if you've got the eye of the tiger, but as the tiger, your eye is on riches, or it's on name your idol here, because it doesn't just have to be money. If it's on relationships, if it's on status, if it's on working and making a name for yourself, if it's on independence, if it's on lifestyle, your eye is bad. And if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you, your eye, is darkness, how great the darkness. That's the warning. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and anything. This is, this is, this is why um, I, I get uh, wary, defensive, <laughs> fearful for the person I'm speaking to. Whenever I, whenever I hear people say, I'm a Christian something. Do you ever, have you ever heard people talk like this? Like, I'm a, I'm a Christian, um, name your ism at the end. Right? I'm a, I can't think of one right now. I'm a Christian futurist. Let's go with a random one. 
It's like, no, no, no. If you're a Christian, there is no word to place alongside Christian which is held with equal weight to Christian. You are a Christian who has an interest in X, Y, Z thing happening in the world. Because if you think of yourself as a Christian X, Y, Z, what you are is an X, Y, Z. Because your eye is bad. That's, that's, that's what I worry when I hear people speak like this. Isn't it strange that so many things in life, good things, can be this dangerous to your soul? Your children, I say that as a parent, can be this in your life. If you love them more than you love God, you idolize them. They become the center of your life instead of your God, and you will treat your children as if they are God. It's not to say we're to neglect our children. That'd be a lot easier. But it is to say we're not to worship them. We're not to worship them. We're not to worship our free time. It's important as Christians that we have the right balance of life. Just last week, we talked about Sabbath and resting. But you can idolize your free time. Unless I get my 30 hours a week of Netflix time, my life can't possibly be good. I could never be happy. I could never cope with the stress of not knowing what happens in Stranger Things season 16. We giggle. But doesn't it happen? Look, here's one from me. I remember not long after Ayla was born, um, realizing that my hobby, uh, which involved a computer that I had built for myself, it was very pretty. It had, it had the gaudy sort of um, RGB lights that looked like something straight out of the 80s, shining out of like glass side panels. I'd done like custom electronic wiring with combs to make them all sit perfectly straight. This thing looked like a finely tuned hot rod engine, except it was just a nerdy computer sitting on my desk. Love that thing. Spent hours building it and rebuilding it when it didn't need rebuilding. It was a wonderful hobby. It's not like it's a sinful hobby to have. But at some point I realized that with the increasing size of my family, I didn't have enough time to do it. And so if I was going to be a good dad, I was probably going to have to get a hobby that I didn't need to be locked in a small room by myself in order to achieve. So I decided to sell the computer. And the moment um, the guy came to my door, I sold it on the internet. He came, he knocked. He liked it, he left. The moment he left holding this computer, I genuinely felt grief. I think, I think there might have been a tear rolled down my cheek. Which is an outrage, right? Who cares? There, how many computers are there in the world? What was happening in my heart that I was so distressed by that moment? I'd, I'd wrestled with it for about six months. And what was happening was that there was something in me which believed that without that outlet, life couldn't be good. Without that outlet, life couldn't be good. And so my hobby had become an idol, and it needed to be put to death. You can do this with relationships. We Just two weeks ago, we talked about marriage and God's views of marriage. Short version, he's for it. Right? He, has a, he has a plan. It's his idea. It's not like... People started getting married, and he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not what I designed those things for. What just happened? That's, it's, it's God's idea. But you can take a relationship with another human being, and you can make it your purpose in life. And it can strangle the soul out of you. And we see this one all the time. This is, this is the, 
Um, this is all, all too often. It's a, it's, a, it's a lady in the church who hasn't managed to find a man and she's getting older and the pressure starts mounting. Go outside the church and find someone. But it's not, it's not, it's, it's, this, is, this is what the Hebrews were doing, marrying outside the faith. But it's not just that. It's the thing happening in the heart that says, I'm not whole. I'm nothing without this person. I need them for life to be good. Without them, I can't be happy. Hopefully, I mean, I think that I've got a fairly godly marriage where things are in proportion. One of the things you learn as you get older is marriage has an end in death. Marriage is not the meaning of life. And if the Lord were to take my wife from me soon, heaven forbid, life still has meaning if Jesus is the center. There's grief. But I still have the thing which matters most. Something as good and wholesome and important as marriage can become an idol. Your job. You can pursue your career single-mindedly as the meaning of life. Jobs are a good thing. Job, God invented jobs. Did you know this? If, if we read the book of Genesis, God puts Adam in the garden and gives him a job to do. On day one, before the fall, work predates sin. It was a lot nicer back then, but it did exist. He was to name all the animals in the garden and tend to the garden. I'm pretty sure that Adam being quite intelligent because he's the first non-fallen human being, the naming job would have got done eventually. That there would be more tending than naming. You can work to the glory of God, but you can also work idolatrously. I am my career. My status, my significance, my identity is in my achievements. Without this, I am nothing. And if you were to lose the job, if it was to not work out, if you were to live through something like, oh, I don't know, a massive global economic downturn and found yourself no longer employed, well, to one person, to the person who worships God, that's loss, it's grief, it's frightening. But my father loves me and will meet my needs and I know who I am. But to the person whose eye is fixed on the job, that's the meaning of life that's been taken away. How could life ever be good again? I have no meaning. I have no purpose. Do you feel it? You can't serve two masters. If the eye of your body is darkness, your body will be filled with darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and family. You cannot serve God and work. You cannot serve God and anything. No, rather, the right pattern is that I serve God first. He alone is the object of my worship. He alone is the source of my comfort and my security, my ambition. My eye is fixed on pleasing Him through faith and obedience. And everything else comes second to Him. 
Now, I think any, any of us who've been around church for any length of time, we know that's the deal. We know what, that's what it is to be a Christian. We know that's the right way to worship God. And the big question that hangs over it is, what is happening in the heart that finds that an impossible ask? Why is that so scary? It's scary, isn't it? I find it scary. Surely, 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 the reason why that concept can seem frightening is because there is something within us which cries out, if I do that, if I fix my attention on God, if I give him the priority over all things in my life, surely it will cause me to miss out. That's what's happening in the heart. To put God first would be to miss out. We don't say it like that. But that's what's happening. Jesus knows our heart. And he's not done talking to us in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts to minister to us at that point of need. Therefore, he says in verse 25, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. Arrayed means clothed, dressed. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore... Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. The Gentiles, those who do not share the worship of our God, the unbelieving nations, they seek after the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world, because they don't understand who God is and how he loves us. The Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's the solution. That's the difference. 
What is the difference between the thorny soil and the good soil? The good soil knows who God is. Who is he? He is our heavenly father who loves us. The great lie of Satan, right since the beginning, right since Genesis chapter 3 has been, you won't die, God knows that you will become like him. That's why he's kept this thing from you. The lie of Satan since the beginning is God makes rules because he wants things for himself and he doesn't want to share them with you. The deceitfulness of riches, the deceit, is the sermon which says, God won't meet your needs, but I can. It's the deceitfulness of all idols. I can give you what he will not. But hear who he is. Your heavenly father knows what you need. Do you know who our God is? He feeds the sparrows. Have you seen sparrows? Like I, I go to the, the, the shopping center near my house in, in, in Capera. There's just like a million of them nesting in the rafters out the front. They come inside all the time. They're in the food court. I don't know how they get in there. They do. There's a million of them. Did you know that God gave them their breakfast this morning? Personally. Individually. By name. He clothes the grass of the field. Have you ever walked through a paddock in the middle of flower season and seen the way that the grass is covered in? It's not lilies here, it's daisies, isn't it? Clover. God clothes the grass, which doesn't work and doesn't earn and doesn't contribute, and he crowns it with glory and makes it more beautiful than King Solomon himself. Do you not realize that in the eyes of our almighty God, you are worth a lot more than a sparrow? You are of greater value than grass. And that the God who feeds them will meet your needs and give you every good thing which is his to give. And if we are to go without something in this life, be it health or material or otherwise, that the God who has not handed you that thing has done so not because he hates you. Not because he's holding out his best blessings and saving them for his favorite people. But because he has deemed it necessary and good. It is part of his plan. And in the fullness of time, he will pour out every one of his blessings on you. How could the God who sent his only son to die in our place and for our sin withhold from us the rest of his blessings? Foolishness. He would never. That's not who he is. This calls us to something, doesn't it? Because of who God is. Because of the way in which he loves us, which is far more secure and generous than the way that anything else in this world loves us. Unlike unlike the deceitfulness of riches, the love of God carries no deceit. 
he really does give us what he promises. And so it calls us in to trust him to lay down our idols and to let go of them because he is enough because he will make life worth living because in him we are secure and have meaning and identity and significance because our hope is in him how does that speak to you today Is it riches? It could be. The thing which competes with God for affection in your heart. Is it some other thing? I I hope and I pray as as we read this, you'll see it. Um, You'll see the most urgent place in your life where God is trying to break through and awaken you to danger so that he might rescue you. There is a better way. There is a fuller way. There is a more pleasant way. And it is always, always, always his way. Not only does our God come and warn us of the danger, that's the whole point of this too, isn't it? Is that he provides redemption. Whenever I, whenever, whenever, whenever I listen to a, um, a sermon like this, there's one thing that always happens, which is that I become aware of something which I've been doing which is not right, and I'm filled with guilt, and I'm filled with shame, and I want to run to the hills. That's not it. Jesus has come so that you might be new. He's come to rescue you, to lift up your eyes, to give you another go, and to give you another go, and to give you another go. Because his mercies are new every day. So the call to come and lay down and let go of idols is the same call to come and receive grace. He is for you today. This I know. Let's pray. Our Father, so much of our suffering is unnecessary. It's self-inflicting. Thanks to sin, there is something in me which believes that my ultimate hope lies somewhere other than with you. The things of this world Riches chief among them. Claims, promises to deliver to my life substance, goodness, happiness, and security. But it lies. I'm a sucker for it. 
It seems so convincing. It seems so obvious to my, to my fallen eyes. It seems appealing. It promises life. Oh, but God, it only delivers death. And this I know by painful experience. Lord, I freely confess that in all those times and all those ways where I allow other things, other people, other ways to take your place in my life, thinking that I'm gaining something, that inevitably it leads to pain, to regret, to guilt, and to shame. Lord, we, we, we pray and we ask that you would give us wisdom and, and, and true sight to see those dangers coming and to avoid them. But being humans, God, every one of us here has already got things in our life where we've taken the bait. So we have to ask for another thing. We have to ask for rescue. We have to ask for redemption. We have to ask for mercy. We have to ask for new eyes. Forgive our sins, we pray, our God. We have not loved you as we should. I am ashamed to see what my heart loves at times. You deserve better, but it's not in me alone to give you better. So we confess. We are fallen. We are wrong. We are broken. Your law justly condemns us. We have no excuse. But Father, we look to the cross where your son suffered and died in our place and for our sins. We look to your heart displayed in that cross where perfect justice and mercy met. And we hope. We ask you that you would give us the redemption which comes by Jesus alone. Rescue our hearts from futile loves. Rescue our eyes from wrong-sidedness and give us eyes to see and a heart to love the God who has loved us first. Give me a heart to believe that when it comes to trusting you, there is never such a thing as missing out. That with godliness, there is great gain. Give me a heart to desire it. <laughs> and give me a strong enough faith in your grace that I'm willing to do the frightening thing of bringing my mess to you to be healed. And God, we thank you that you love hopeless causes like me. Unlike the deceitfulness of riches, you are faithful. You are kind. You are our heavenly Father in whom there is no fault and no lack of generosity.
Thank you for being you. Meet our needs in Jesus, we pray. Amen.